Section 21 of Lou Guru. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Winterburn. Lou Guru by Eden Philpotts. Fair Delance. Chapter 1. A Frenchman sat in his bath eating mangoes. The crystal waters were pleasant and cool after a terribly hot night. The fruit was luscious and juicy to perfection. But neither one nor other gave Monsieur Marbeau much apparent satisfaction. His bathroom alone might have smoothed the cares of a less troubled mind. It was an ideal spot, full of white marble, with a widely opened window at the edge of the bath itself. Here, twining on trellises, a bright tangle of purple and yellow convolvulus fringed the aperture and extended graceful sprays even to the water's edge. Without, tall coconut palms met the view, and red mountain roses also, gleaming in a setting of dark green. Here waved feathery branches of lofty tamarinds, and still more fairy foliage winnowed the sunlight above great polished canes of the bamboo. Faint odors from jasmine and orange blossoms scented the soft breeze, while beyond garden and forest, mellowed under fast-dying mists of morning, rose the noble acclivities of a mountain, clothed in tropic robes of blue shadow, emerald light, and tawny gold, fringed by the tiny habitations of man, crowned with a silver cloud. Jacques Marbeau's West Indian home stood in a spot greatly favored by nature at some distance inland from Port Castries, St. Lucia. And the lofty eminence he beheld, bold and bright against the blue of heaven, was Morne Fortuné, now an English fortress, formerly, in times long past, the theater of fierce war. Neither his marble tub nor choice fruits brought pleasure to Jacques. He splashed the mango juice from his face, flung away the stone, and turned in his bath to look abroad. His brown, restless eyes wandered from one fair vista to another, but their glance always came back and fixed upon the same object, those distant verdure-clad terraces of towering Morn Fortuné. The man grumbled an oath to himself, grit his teeth together, and went so far as to extend a hairy arm and shake his fist at the mountain. Because he was English and a soldier, that was all the reason, only because of that, he said aloud to himself over and over again. Monsieur Marbeau's lack of self-command and self-restraint in the affairs of life had certainly placed him in many an awkward position, but for a significant circumstance. He chanced to be one of those lucky or unlucky mortals who reach quite a ripe age without reverses, trials, or considerable sorrows. Life with him had been the happiest, most successful, sunshiny business in the world. Indeed, since his advent at St. Lucia, he had enjoyed a measure of prosperity and good fortune almost unexampled in the island's history. His ventures all turned out well. His estates flourished as far as any can be said to do so in the English West Indies. His store and emporium were the features of Port Castries, and worth a Jew's eye, so people said. Marbeau was the universal provider of St. Lucia, and it is not too much to say that his career, up to the present time, had been absolutely triumphant.
For this cause the man's inner nature and disposition were unknown even to himself. Spoiled children of fortune may easily gain a reputation for mingled strength and sweetness of character, because to strike a high note and preserve a lofty and even religious tone, when fate and chance conspire to make your existence a blessed dream on a bed of scented flowers, is fairly simple. But no man mistakes this world for heaven more than once or twice in his life. The brighter the sunshine, the darker the cloud that suddenly blackens it. And Monsieur Marbeau was now writhing under his first great rebuff. A bolt from the blue had fallen, wounded him in a particularly tender spot, and wakened possibilities in his nature that had slept unknown, even unsuspected until then. These forces were leaping, armed and adult, from the man's head, were obscuring the vision of past prosperity and success, were uniting to magnify the present bitter wrong, were altogether blinding the memory and blotting the judgment of their creator. A woman, greatly blessed in the undivided love of Jacques Marbeau, a woman as beautiful as God need make to fire the senses and break the hearts of her masters and her slaves, had refused him and married somebody else. That anything feminine could have so far damned and deflected the placid currents of his life was more than Marbeau's philosophy had power to accept. He had regarded the matter as accomplished from the first. He had taken his conquest as a foregone conclusion, and even crowed rather long and loud in male company before the event. But some of these clarion notes, unfortunately, coming to the lady's ears, induced her to make decision quicker than she might otherwise have done. It happened that one Lieutenant Field crossed her life just then. He was an Englishman, quartered with his regiment at Mournfortunet. In addition to being handsome and possessed of a private income, and a measure of intelligence beyond that of the average warrior, a British title loomed as a pleasant possibility in the dim future of the Lieutenant's life. So Claire Garnier became Mrs. Claude Field, and our friend Marbeau imagined, when the first news of the tremendous event crushed him, that never since the world began to spin had anybody before found themselves faced with such a heart-rending, unexpected, and mortifying catastrophe. So he sat in his bath, and used intemperate language, and cursed a very happy couple. For himself he regarded existence as a thing that was now finished. Broadly considered, it appeared to him that life was an invention of a demon, while, as for conscious intelligence, it must certainly be considered the supremest act of that fiend's malignity. The mangoes, with sweet juices streaming from their yellow flesh, were but as ashes and dust in his mouth. His cigarette smacked of sulphur. Processions of little blue devils walked along the edge of his marble bath, and some fell in. These climbed up to his shoulder, and, standing upon tiptoe, buzzed their poison into the man's ear. So he continued, and might have sat there until the evening, shaking his fist at Mournfortuné, but for an incident. Something rustled in the foliage that twined over the window ledge on Marbot's right hand and glancing down he beheld a little snout on a thin neck, and two small steely eyes cold as a fish's. The thing twisted its flat head here and there, while from time to time a quiver, 
as of a tiny flash of black forked lightning played in and out of its jaws. Our Frenchman bounded from his bath, perhaps quicker than ever he had done so before. Then, in a state of nature, he sped out of the apartment and shouted for a black boy. In the note of his voice was a sound that showed the man had been a good deal frightened. A young negro came pattering down the passage, and his master accosted him. Get a stick and be sharp. There's a fer de lance in the bathroom. The devil came in from the garden, and I found it within two feet of me. Another moment, and I might have been a dead man. Fer de lance, him too terrible, massa. Me no likey wicked poison snake. Me fetch de udder boy, sar. You'll go yourself, Dan, and at once. He's in there, or else out under the convolvulus again. Anyway, you've got to kill him, and be smart, too. So set about it. And mind, I must see him dead, or I'll have something to say. Monsieur Marbot retired to his dressing room, and Dan, not particularly liking the task before him, whined to himself, used one or two of his master's favorite expressions, and went to get a stick. He found a long cane, then, opening the bathroom door, walked very cautiously in. And truly the Ethiop had need of caution, for Fair de Lance, Trigonocephalus lanceolatus, to give him his scientific appellation, is the most poisonous creature nature breeds throughout the West Indies. Death lives in him, hid as Satan of old. About the first thing that Dan saw on entering his master's bathroom was the snake he came to kill. It crept along the edge of the bath as he watched it, then fell suddenly to the floor, and with graceful undulations wound across the chamber. The surface of the ground was covered with open woodwork in a lattice of squares, and, at the negro's first careful and half-hearted approach, Ferdelance made a dive and disappeared, whereupon Dan, fearing the possible proximity of the deadly thing to his naked feet, mounted upon a chair with all possible dispatch. From this commanding point he watched his foe creep hither and thither. There was no egress below the wooden frame, and presently Fer de Lance came sliding and gliding up again. Now he curled inquiringly along the junction of the floor and wall, seeking an outlet, and once Dan made a feeble poke at it with his cane. But the creature flashed away in an instant, and so lightning-quick were its movements when roused that its pursuer began to grow alarmed for himself. If he caught me, I sa gone nigger, he reflected. But just then, by the luckiest accident possible, Dan's chance came to him and he utilized it, with ready presence of mind scarcely to have been expected. The snake, continuing his sinuous progress, met a cigar-box, open, in a corner. It contained a piece of soap and some fragments of old flannel. Into the box and under the flannel crawled Fair de Lance, evidently designing to rest a while and mature further plans for escape. Then did Dan, with admirable courage, seize his opportunity, leave his chair, and, from a safe distance, with the help of his stick, tilt over the lid of the box and so capture the reptile within it. After a negro has done anything he considers in the least clever, his pride and egotism become supremely ridiculous. Dan, upon this successful issue to his task, held his head high in the air, made his prisoner quite secure, and then marched off to Monsieur Marbot. 
you told me kill dat old fair de lance sar har him am all libe alive have you caught it yes sar me no fraid of nassy snake i caught him i caught him with my own hand sar i just caught him by de throat and he twine and twist and wriggle wriggle but i no care i put him in de cigar box and har him am how do i know he's there you're such a liar dan the negro appeared greatly hurt de solemn truth for de lord sar dat massa fair de lance indar wish i die if i no speak solemn truth dat he cotch indar you get shotgun and shoot him through de box if you no trust dan yes i believe you answered the master he was silent for a moment then spoke again leave it there for the present and here's a dollar for you you're a plucky boy to attempt such a thing and a fool to boot if i find presently you have told me a lie then i shall give you something else besides the dollar right sar thank you sar i's a plucky boy dat's de word sar thank you plenty sar then the elated dan withdrew to lord it over less fortunate friends he already quite believed himself that he had captured fair de lance by sheer force of arms it was a historic achievement that he would some day hand down to his children monsieur marbot meanwhile completed his toilet waxed the points of his heavy moustache thanked heaven for his recent escape as became a good catholic then adjourned with fair de lance to another apartment and here placed the cigar-box upon a table hard by were already arranged the materials for manufacture of a gin cocktail jacques himself mixed the ingredients of spirit crushed ice syrup and so forth after which with a swizzle stick he bubbled the decoction into a mass of white creamy foam and drank it at a draught then turning for something to smoke he actually attempted to open the snake's prison it stood where he had placed it beside similar receptacles one cigar box is certainly very much like another the same idea struck marbot and set him thinking he sauntered into a glorious veranda alive with light and scent and color far below where his private glades and forests ended stretched vast acres of sugar-cane and the breeze brushed and danced over their green tops in little waves of light beyond towered morn fortune but monsieur marbot shook his fist no longer his brains were busy his eyes saw nothing he became quite full of amazement at the tenor of his own reflections disappointment and adversity are no doubt among those circumstances which will sometimes suddenly introduce a man to himself marbot had dived into his own heart and made a new acquaintance presently dan arrived with biscuits coffee brandy and a request please sar may i have massa fair de lance what i cotch in barfroom his master started and angrily refused certainly not what should you want with it for obi man sar he gib me somethin good for him don't you know better dan but you're like the rest what's the good of hammering christianity into your thick heads we drive you to church like cattle but let us turn our backs for an instant and away you go from the holy place to your own superstitions and gods and evil spirits no i want the snake for a friend of mine in barbados be off with you 
the baffled dan disappeared and monsieur marbot resumed a certain savage train of most curious if not idle reflections all cigar boxes are so very much alike he thought it would be such a natural such an obvious error and the little blue devils were at his ear again clustering each over the other to get in a word like bees at the mouth of a hive end of section 21 Recording by Stephen Winterburn.